Built Unstoppable is a weekly podcast that features a new guest each week who shares their experiences, learnings, and helpful tips for achieving your greatest potential. Welcome to episode number seven of the Built Unstoppable podcast. I'm your host, Justin Levy, and today I'm joined by David Baeza, who's the founder and CEO of Butter Toast, which is a marketing agency built for venture-backed tech companies by tech veterans. Thanks for joining the podcast today, David. Thanks, Justin. Good to be here. Now, how did the name Butter Toast come about, and can you talk a bit about what your agency does uh, because I think it's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, that, it's funny. That, <laughs> that is probably the number one question I get asked. <laughs> um, and everybody thinks it's just a you know, cute marketing slogan, which it is. But I was having toast with my daughter at a diner here in town. And the waitress came over and set the, you know, set the toast on the, on the counter. And, and just in the middle was just one slab of butter. And I was thinking, can't they just you know, take a second and butter to the edges and just do it right. So that led to writing a blog post on Medium called Butter Toast, where I talked about, you know, shipping quality versus kind of trying to be first and others trying to be best versus trying to be first, um, which led to a speaking gig and then speaking in, in uh, Fargo. Then when it came time to name the company, a friend of mine goes, oh, you're you're the butter toast guy. Just call it butter toast. And so that's how it happened. Now, what do you do as part of your agency? How do you help these VCs and, and companies that you work with? Yeah. So it's, you know, being called an agency is not what I wanted. So we, we I'll give it some context. It started out as me, we hired a bunch of other contractors, um, was connected by VCs into their portfolio companies because of some prior relationships I had. And then what ultimately we get hired for is growth, right? So revenue, they get hired to increase revenue. And that comes in lots and lots of forms, right? So if you get the call, they have a problem with revenue or they want to increase revenue, it's usually a combination of so many different things. It's messaging and positioning and they're developing the wrong content or using the wrong tactics or um, their sales funnels broken. There's just a thousand things that go into it. And so we got hired for revenue or what's called revenue acceleration. And the, pro the reason we got to be or had to be called an agency is because people couldn't compartmentalize the offering. They just didn't, they didn't that when you say that to somebody who doesn't necessarily know what that is, it doesn't make any sense at all, but everybody gets what an agency does. And working at Citrix, uh, like you, I had hired and fired um, a lot of agencies. And so if I was going to call myself an agency, I wanted to remove all the friction and all the things I didn't like about agencies. So this is, this is the rub when people come to hire us is you, you, you can't hire us just to write one piece of content. You couldn't hire us for a website. We don't submit any of our stuff for awards. You hire us for outcomes, right? There's something you want to happen. And a byproduct of that could be white papers, webinars, case studies, website updates, campaigns, things like that. But it's different for everybody. So we come in and figure out, you know, what, what is the outcome that you want? 
and when do you want it? And then we work our way backwards and we do what's called discovery, where we go in there for four weeks and we ask them for all their systems of record in marketing um, and access to Salesforce. And we just audit everything. We don't change everything. We just look at everything. Um, and from that, and then from interviewing the exec team, people in sales and marketing and across the company, we figure out what they have to work with and what they need more of. And then we build a statement of work and a sell around that. So we're not selling you shit you don't need. You can't buy anything by the hour. Um, it's just by the outcome. So it is, it's a very different model than an agency because we don't nickel and dime you with a bunch of shit. Um, we take equity in every deal and we're with them for the long term. So we're in this almost four years now and we're really lucky that clients are now with us. We measure clients in years instead of months because it's working. Um, but yeah, so, so we're an agency, but I haven't come up with a better word of an agency right now that the market's going to understand. Now, many people will think that you're crazy to hear that you're willing to make a five hour ish drive from your house and solving <laughs> to Santa, yeah. San Francisco slash Silicon Valley just for one meeting. Can you right, explain right. your why behind that? Oh, my 10 hour round trip video. Um, yeah, yeah. So I live, I used to, I live in Solvang, California. San Francisco is about a four and a half or five hour drive. And I was going up usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or more um, every single week. But a lot of times there would just be one meeting. And so, of course, I'd hop in the car at whatever time it was to make that. Sometimes I'd hop in the car at 5 a.m. to make an 11 a.m. meeting, things like that, have the meeting drive and come back home again. And the interesting part was that of when people heard I was doing that, the number one question I got is, like, oh, my God, what a waste of time. Why would you drive 10 hours round trip for a one hour meeting? But which and then it just sparked the idea for the video, which is nobody's asking the right question, which is what's the meeting about? Like, why is it so important? And that led to the fact that a lot of people just don't want to put in the work, right? You want an outcome. In other words, they, you know, you, you decide what you want and you're willing to pay the price. Most people aren't willing to pay the price to get it, right? And part of me, my willingness to do this, to drive 10 hours is my unwillingness to move back to San Francisco where I grew up. Because I have kids here and I want to build an agency in the wine country, which I'm doing, that works with venture-backed tech companies across the U.S. and Canada and Japan and other places. Um, but to do that, you have to contort yourself into doing really unusual things that most people won't do. And so the lesson from that was whatever you want to do, you, the hardest part that people don't want to do is pay the price, right? It could be that 10-hour round trip, and most of the meetings don't work out. So you think you're just going to get meeting fatigue, but the ones that do are spectacular. You know, and so it's, it's, it was more just a mindset shift that I was trying to talk to people about as opposed to people being like, oh my God, you're amazing for driving 10 hours. It was more about just to shift your mindset towards what you want and write down the price you have to pay and pay it. And a few times you stop midway, which happens to be my house and <laughs> you're treated to a, a wonderful dinner from my yes, wife. Yes, I am. But <laughs> one of the things, and you, you brought this up kind of on the outskirts of this, where you live is a small community, even outside of Santa Barbara, which is probably the closest, lar largest town or city. But you mentioned your family. 
And of course, mm-hmm. the initial part is the part you focus on. You don't want to uproot your daughters and move them somewhere else since they're school age now. But it's always been your goal when the two of us talk that you want to leave this, you're working to build this to be something that you can leave them behind and let them make their decisions as well as show that this type of concept can work in any size community. You don't have to be in San Francisco proper. Yeah. Yes. So you're hitting on it almost exactly right. So the, what I was trying to create is something that, um, uh, just my best friend's dad did for him where he created a business in a city that they, his kids could come in and run. My thought here was to create something in a city that one, it shouldn't exist. Right. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's an exponential challenge because of talent, right? A tiny wine country town really in, in, right. Especially pre COVID shouldn't have um, some high flying tech agency that works with San Francisco based companies, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So the goal was to have everyone to find talent anywhere that I could, but first choice was here, right? So anybody that I could, so I have a a series of talent that I have here in the wine country, whatever I can't fill yet, I pull from across the globe, right? Through my partnership with Misfit. And so the goal was to show, was one to have, to demonstrate that it can be done. Right. So this is before remote working got as sexy as it is now because of COVID is that it absolutely can be done if you're willing to pay the price, which means hire talent from anywhere in the globe that you can to fill when you need it. Right. So we have talent that traverses from almost every single time zone across the globe um, and it works stunningly well. The other side of that is I was not willing to pay um, Silicon Valley wages for talent when I could get the same or better talent for significantly less and then pass that on to the client, right? So the goal was to be the highest value I could provide to the client at the absolute best price I could provide it. And so we've achieved that, right? We, we know because we, the VCs, we started this at the request of a VC. And so they vetted the business model. They know what we charge going in. So we know we are significantly more cost effective um, than anything that's out there, like by miles, because we don't have office space. Um, We rarely travel. So our overhead is incredibly, incredibly low. But the long-term goal back to the original question is, it's not just for my kids, it's for all the kids here in the Valley, because a lot of them, unless you want to be in wine or hospitality um, or cattle or uh, there's a casino here, or if you want to be in any of those things, that's pretty much what pays here in town. So a lot of people go to UCSB or other places and don't come back because there's really not a good living to come back to. And I'm really trying to change that. Well, we'll pay them very well. And if they want to come back home to the wine country, great. And so it would be my kids, my friend's kids, kids that haven't been born yet. Um, to really prove that it can be done. Now, as someone who does live in such a small wine country town, and you love to spend your weekend at local wineries and tasting rooms and 
what have you. Several years ago, you were the co-founder of a company called Vine Rangers. Can you talk about what that original concept was? Yeah, so Vine Rangers started when when drones came out, it started to become popular. Um, and I had a fairly good understanding of how they were going, starting to be used in agriculture. I just recognized an opportunity to figure out how to use them for wine. And so at the time, they were just doing basic infrared imaging um, across large swaths of land, right, for agriculture, trying to find, you know, dryness, water saturation, things like that, really, really basic stuff. So I worked with a guy out of Oxford University to figure out a way with a camera and the right processing equipment, how could we get to things like ripeness of fruit um, for wine, for wine grapes? How could we identify different types of diseases? And so we were successful in trying to figure that out. Then I lit up a couple pilot programs with two wineries here in town. One was Sarlis and Sons, one was Firestone Vineyard, and they let me tromp all over their wineries for two growing seasons. And it was, we sort of cracked the nut on how you could gather that information. Then we won what's called the Capstone Project at UCSB. So we got a bunch of engineers to help us build our first iOS app, which then became um, a different offering um, called Vine Pilot. And so what we figured out from all of that, well, we get all this amazing data about ripeness of fruit and um, different problems associated with um, infections from or infestations from bugs. They needed to have it in their hand inside the vineyard um, to have it be effective because what they were doing, it's, it's in a, these are small boutique wineries, right? One truck drives up to, up to another truck and tells them to do something. There's no traditional work orders like most people listening to this podcast would think of. There's no Slack. There's no anything, right? They're just one person drives up to another person and says, go check this row and this vine. And then that's it. So it's lost, right? They have a number. They have, an, they have a, a price per acre that they can afford. Um, they have different margins and different tolerances for different things. But all that information was lost. So we created a, this app, which was, and there's a lot of people in the, in the vineyard that don't speak English, which is just all image-based. So you click on this, it has a GPS tracking, I'm here, I click on the bug, I click on the note, then we, the vineyard manager sees it, sends out a work order, and so we could begin to track all of the expenses and all, all, the, all the production that was actually going into the vineyard acre by acre. And so that was, that was what we built. Um, then I went shopping around trying to get a VC funded because I couldn't afford to continue to fund it after two years. And we couldn't get funding. And I think a big part, I still put it on me, was I went to the wrong VCs. But I went to 21 VCs that were VCs that I knew. And they couldn't, at the time, um, accurately estimate the risk associated with agriculture if something goes bad. Right? They, they loved the technology. They thought it was super cool. It was interesting, starting with wine grapes, they wanted to build more strawberries, but what, how do they figure out if somebody has a bad growing season? What's the risk to the company? What happens in when the growing season's over in the summertime? So we just couldn't make, I couldn't stick it out long enough to figure out how to get it funded. Um, but that, through that process, ironically, through all the VCs, 
led to butter toast because they really liked everything that I did. They go, can you take all that marketing you did for yourself and apply it to my portfolio companies? And that's how it started. And now if you certainly fast forward, I don't think that there's a, you know, uh, essentially a competitor there may be, and it's not an industry I follow, of course, but now you do see the proliferation of drones being used for all sorts of really interesting ways. You know, last night we were watching shark week and they were showcasing a drone to be able to capture sharks as they breach outside the ocean and they, they would fly, fly around it, capture the photos and then be able to input that against a software that mm -hmm. they had customized and, you know, it'd be able to do all of its yeah. analysis and tell them all sorts of things about that shark and its height and whatnot. So you are seeing that I think across different industries nowadays but it always technology always comes along so it's really expensive initially mm -hmm. and then as it proliferates it gets cheaper and more accessible yeah the biggest issue at the time for us was connectivity there's no connectivity in the vineyard right so you have to be able to do things you have to be able to upload the data or collect the data um, and upload it at a different location Right, so that's one big issue. The second limitation was the speed at which the drone could move um, based on the camera quality, right? So there's a certain type of day when respiration happens in the vineyard. So the prime time to be taking these images are usually just after 8 a.m. and before 2 p.m. And so we would have to fly really, really slow because there's limitations on the, we had really high res expensive cameras um that had to be ultra lightweight to increase the flight time so all of these things while we got the data that we needed the technology wasn't there so you could really do it at scale like i think it is now i think it's much closer i don't follow it religiously but i get hit up on linkedin every now and then if people want advice um it's closer the problem is one of the the two things they need the most are what's happening with the water saturation irrigation um, infestation from bugs. Where is it? Where did it start? What is it? And ripeness of fruit. Ripeness of fruit is really tough to get. It's not too hard for white wine grapes because the canopy is pulled back, right? So it's, it's, it's weaved in super tight, um, generally speaking. Red wine grapes are the big fluffy canopies where you big explosive canopies and the, the red grapes are underneath. And nothing can punch through the leaves to get to the grapes. So I used to wear the camera on my belt and walk the rows to get it. We built a ground drone prototype, but just it was finished just before we wrapped it up. But it, I think that's still an ongoing issue is, you know, you'd have to strap cameras to existing equipment. Like there's ways to get it. I don't think anybody's cracked it perfectly, but I would say it's probably tenfold better than when I was trying to take a run at it. And see anyone listening to a podcast about becoming built unstoppable would have never 
guess they would get an expertise or a 101 <laughs> lesson on wine growth and, and, you know, what's the difference between white and red grapes. But here you go. So, there you go. Yeah. So whether you would consider yourself this or not, you seem to have a knack in many ways for being a futurist. And, and what I mean by that is when we started work to, working together, it was you know, because you and a mutual friend of ours saw how important social media was for the enterprise. So you brought us in very early, before there was even uh, usually a budget line within enterprise companies. And then you're early in, or one of, you know, one of the first in with the market of the drones that we we're just talking about being used in innovative ways. And now, from my understanding, you're early as being someone who does the work that you do with VCs. So for a podcast based on becoming built unstoppable, how has this type of view that you have play into it? And what would you see as that next step for listeners? Yeah, I mean, if you, I've never been called a futurist. That's super nice of you. <laughs> Thank you. That's a, that's a, there's a first for everything. Um, I think, you know, the ability to recognize opportunity is one thing, right? And I think everybody has it. Like everybody sees something and they're like, oh my God, I thought of that. Or I could improve that. Or what if this? Like everybody has the ability to recognize opportunity. Um, and everybody has the ability to act on it. They don't, right? And so tenacity, and this, this really comes from my dad, because my dad, my dad used to say, because you're like water on a rock. You just don't quit. Like I, I have no quit. And to my detriment, I would say, I have no quit. And so I see something and I do, not everything, but when I see something that I really think I'm interested in, right? It's not gonna be successful if you don't like it. So if you're just doing it for money, you're probably gonna fail. Um, but I was like, God, I really love wine. I think drones are super cool. Let's figure it out. And I literally found somebody that knew way more than I did um, in London, in the UK, in Oxford. I had to find somebody that knew processing power and, and I had to find a pilot. I didn't know how to, I, to this day, I can't fly a single drone. I could do neither of those things, but I could assemble a team that could help me figure out how to do it because I recognized the opportunity, right? And did it. And so same thing goes for, you know, working with you guys. I, you know, I, I heard about what you and Chris Brogan were up to and recognized that with Lisa, who you're talking about. Um, we're like, this is it. Like, this is the way the world is going. These are the sharpest people we know. Let's, let's meet with them. And that was exactly how it happened. And then Butter Toast was, it literally was a, like, a, I guess, a simple accident from Vine Rangers, where I'd, one of the VCs I'd worked with back east, or his portfolio company was back east, asked me to help a portfolio company. He recognized the opportunity more than I did, right? But when he said it, you know, he's like, look, we, they need your help in this execution, in this band of size of companies. They really need it because they can't attract people with your experience because they can't afford them, but they really need your help. 
and let's build something around it. And that led to that opportunity. And then, you know, I took it and made it my own, but, and it's, it's the uncomfortable part is sticking with it. It's, it's when I had no clients, like nobody, I had one, they sent me at first and then I had to get all the rest of them. And then these incredibly long taxing drives and flights and train rides to get the second one and the third one. And then they all churn out and I'm back at zero. And then you got to go at it again. It's that tenacity. You want, you got to, you can't lose sight of the, you have to know the opportunity is there. If you ever lose your will and recognition of opportunity, then there's going to be no desire to get up at 4am and do it. It's just, you recognize the opportunity, take all the hits and all the beatings that go along with it um, until it gets to a point that you can make it successful. I don't think it requires any, there's no background required, zero, nothing. And you learn on the job. What the hell do I know about running an agency? Zero. <laughs> I know nothing about drones. I know nothing about agriculture. I knew nothing about disease detection, but I thought, shit, there's definitely something here. And then don't go it alone. That was the other thing. You, you, I can't do it alone. I don't have these skills. So find the people who have them and convince them to join your, your, your band of merry men and make it work. Now, over the course of knowing you, whether you know this or not, and I think it plays into what you're just saying, you know, I've learned so much from you. And I've told you that before. I've grown in my career around you. I've grown personally thanks to you. And I, th one of the, those reasons is because you've always stayed who you are at your core and you don't change even if maybe different lanes may, could have been better opportunities for you. Now, how do you, how are you trying to pass that on to your girls as they grow into their own? Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good one. So, um, it's teaching them and we have this, I have this conversation with them when they're old enough to understand that, um, it's just self-concept. So I've been pushing self-concept since they were very, very little and we'd sit in bed when they're young and I said, you know, how much does, how much does daddy love you? And I'd hold my hands a little bit apart and a little farther apart and a little farther. I said, what if, you know, what if you burn the house down? How much would I love you? Ah, this much. I said, okay, no matter what. So that was early. And then I said, you know, now it's responsibility. And I, I tell them, I go, nobody owes you anything. You are 100% responsible for you. And I've been telling this since they were like 12 and 13 years old. I go, you are totally responsible for the outcome of your life. You, not me, not mom, not your friends, not college, not high school. It's all on you. And it's what you take from those things but don't expect there to be somebody standing there because they owe you anything. Nobody owes you a thing. And so now we're having the, even this college conversation now, where should I go? I go, you go anywhere you want to go. I don't care. I said, you're going to squeeze that lemon or orange or whatever is for all you can take. I don't care if you go to JC or Cal Poly or don't go at all or go to Harvard. I fired plenty of Ivy leaguers in my life. It doesn't make any difference. Right. It's 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 what you do with what you've been given or not been given that creates opportunity for you. And the second that it's like, oh, you have to go to this school, you've got to work at this company, you've then now passed responsibility for your success onto somebody else that you have no control over. 
It's just silly. And, and, and parents, I see them do it all the time. Parents' ego gets wrapped up in the school that their kid goes to. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's insane. Like, it's just crazy. Cause you have the, and I tell the kids all the time, you have the fucking internet. <laughs> I didn't have that. I didn't have the encyclopedia of the world at my fingertips. I said, you have everything right in front of you. Go to college. Don't go to college. Take a year in between, take two years in between, you know, so they can't ever think resting on my laurels. And then now that they're getting old enough and I said, don't, when I die, I want you to expect nothing from me, zero dollars, none. And that they're like, you know, that's, and that's a tough one to say to your kids. Cause of course you want to leave your kids everything you possibly can. And, and I will do my best to leave them something for sure. But I said, don't count on it. And I've seen it firsthand in my own family. Um, they were, they sort of put off, not just my own family, but others, they put off doing the work or put off their dream or put off just kind of thinking, oh, I'm just going to inherit a lot of money one day and didn't. It actually happened. And I saw it firsthand how just, just debilitating that is to somebody when expectations had been set and then not met another 40. So I, I tell them, and they're, I tell them this, they're 17 and 15 now. I said, you know, don't live your life thinking you're going to get something from mom and I. Live your life, follow your dreams, save your money, don't buy dumb shit, you know, and then reinforcing that over and over and over again. So they have so much self-concept about their ability. They don't need my shit because they got their own. I see that. And I've heard that too, both on the, the, where you go to school type question. Yep. You know, yep. I know that when I was in high school, there was always the push to go to Ivy league or, even that well, it mattered back then because that, yeah. was, that was the entry point. Then it mattered. There was no internet. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when I was grown up, before I got into a high school that mattered, I was in poverty and graduating high school or obtaining your GED was what college was, you know, obtaining your, your bachelor's. And bachelors became a master's and then a master's became, well, if you want to become a professor, you have to go PhD or all these twists and turns on that. And now you're right. You, you can take whatever path you want. You can build an agency in a little wine country, uh, or little town, if you want, you can, you can do whatever, because the internet, you can pick up your laptop and go anywhere in the world. You know, I think two areas, and we both know some of these couples, areas as around the topics of marriage and kids are completely completely different than oh god yeah. when we're yeah. younger right totally. some people uh, are have been in very long-term relationships and have decided that they're never getting married they just they don't think that society should dictate their relationship while others 
have no plans to have kids and it's mm-hmm. for no no reason of you know just focused on the career some is that but people have that choice across the board and when it comes to sitting on your laurels it's dangerous i think it's very dangerous and the younger you have the ability to invest for your retirement and what you may or may not be able to pass along is way more important than being 40 or 50 years old and hoping that daddy and mommy are leaving you something. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, that paying your side, they, you know, they both, Layla started working, my oldest started working a few years ago in a restaurant. Summer's trying to find a job, but can't because of COVID. But I said, I taught him, I said, you pay yourself first. What does that mean? That means right when you get paid, you put money in your account, pay you, right? And then take a piece out and go buy a pair of shoes or whatever you want to do, but pay yourself first, make it a significant percentage. So it's just, it's like, it's like exercise, right? You want to get up big biceps, you got to do curls. Same thing with savings. They got to get used to it. It's got to become a muscle. They're just used to paying themselves first. You say savings and they have a verse reaction. Say pay yourself first. They're like, oh, that makes total sense. You know, so they just feel it. It feels, because I explained to him, I, I had to teach him, which sucks. I don't know why high schools don't teach math 101, but I literally put a, a presentation together and taught him math 101. This is, this is a check. This is a savings account. This is the numbers on the check. This is what happens when you invest dollars. This is what a stock is. Like at a super high level. And they're like, why don't they teach us this in school? I'm like, I, you got me. I don't know. And then their girlfriends asked me to help. Like some of their girlfriends said, can you show me that presentation? I heard about it. Can we look at it? I said, of course, you know? And so I've showed them um, just to get that muscle memory started of, you know, it's on you. Here's how you save a dollar. Here's not, not to buy dumb shit. Every time you get a raise, don't spend as much as the percentage of the raise. Just, but it takes so much time. It's like, you gotta, you gotta say it a thousand times till they actually finally get it. But my oldest is finally starting to get it. You know, she pays herself first and then she buys a pair of socks or shoes or something cute, but they get it. And they'll hopefully go into adulthood and not buy too much dumb shit in which they will because everybody does. Um, and then be good, you know, make better choices with who they have as their life partners. And I told, like I tell them, I said, I don't care if you get married or not, grandkids or not, whatever you want to do. I said, but do it for you. Don't ever do it for me or anybody else. Do because it makes you happy. Yeah. And I, it's funny when my wife and I have looked at numbers and, and what have you over our career, I've had the fortunate ability to be in B2B enterprise tech, working for large, large uh Fortune 500 companies as you were when we first met. Mm-hmm. And from day one, even not understanding truly what a 401k was, I went and f- found out how much we could max. And there are two reasons behind that. I knew that the company was going to match it up to a percentage. I knew, well, there's probably three reasons. I knew it was pre-tax and that made me really happy. <laughs> but I also knew it was going to go long-term for retirement and compound on itself. 
And it's free money. When you look at CNBC or any one of these studies that have come out over time, we'll look at it and where we are right now, even in times of this nature, we're far more advanced than, you know, folks that are 40 years and older. All it took was taking a few dollars out of every paycheck when I was younger and advancing that. And one of the other areas that I believe strongly in, and it obviously didn't take place until I got into a a different financial situation was to give back to the community that's always supported you or that aligns with what you believe in. So we donate, and I talk about it a lot publicly, to Feed in America. And the reason why is it's very simple. I grew up in poverty, but $1 provides 10 meals. So what you, to your example or what you're explaining to pay yourself first it's not that hard. No one's saying you have to take $500 out and donate it. If you donate five bucks a month, you're providing 50 meals. That's having totally. a true impact on the community that needs it the most. So that's another area that we really think our money goes to is, is donating. Yeah. And, you know, just even... Philanthropy in general, however it's defined, is important to know that the world's it's more than about you, you know, and it's even with COVID and everything going on and people are struggling, there's people, I mean, significant portions of the world have it way worse than we do. Yeah. In our worst of times. And just knowing, just even thinking like that and passing that along and the fact that you guys do it is is huge. Um but getting that in the DNA of kids and even adults who've never donated before, it just, you know, one, it feels great. And you're, you're really changing the trajectory of somebody else's life. Sure. Absolutely. Now, second to last question for you, the last mm-hmm. ones that give me, but what does being built unstoppable mean to you? Oh, let me think. Um, I guess I'd probably go back to it's, it's, it's a mindset, right? It's not, it's not having to do with your gender or where you come from or your experience or or anything. It's not, it's not something of people of privilege. It's not, it's just a mindset, right? To be unstoppable means it doesn't mean you don't actually stop when something doesn't work, but you have the fortitude to continue right? Whatever that means to you, like this, you know, built unstoppable could be, you know, you work at 7-Eleven and God, you hate it more than anything in the world. And then at night you start to build up your side hustle or you find your decide, you know, you want to work at um, another chain retail because you love it or, and you figure out a way to pivot out of the thing you hate into something else that's built unstoppable, you know, or, you know, stay at home, single mom who is trying to make ends meet, figures out how to sell, things, her paintings or things that she sews at night um, on Etsy and because she's trying to make a better life. That's, that's built unstoppable. Like it's, it's not just people who create big companies or tiny companies or companies at all. It's that willingness to continue and endure and continue and endure despite circumstances 
and then having an understanding that the government doesn't owe you anything. It's on you, right? And taking that responsibility for yourself, no matter your situation in life, and doing something with it to improve your circumstances or improve the circumstances of others. Now, finally, where can people find you or Buttered Toast on the web? Um, I'm pretty easy to find. So LinkedIn, um, I'm probably the most active on LinkedIn simply because that's where my community is. So if I'm swimming in the VC starter found up world, um, I produce content for LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Insta. It's all on David Beza. I'm on Twitter at David Beza. I'm on LinkedIn at David Beza. Um, I'm actually playing around with, um, uh, not, I'm on Snapchat. I think of the David Beza, but I don't really use it too often. Um, I'm on TikTok at the David Beza cause I'm trying to figure out that platform cause it's aging up, but on David Beza on Instagram, I'm pretty active, but that's mostly family stuff, but you're welcome to connect with me there. Um, on Twitter, the website is buttertoast.io. Um, email is david at buttertoast.io. So I'm have, having a texting platform number, um, which I don't know off the top of my head because I'm just starting it, that I'll be adding a phone number to uh, the videos on LinkedIn so you can text me. So I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> and I do highly recommend that folks connect with you on LinkedIn at least. And because you produce regular videos about everything across the board, you know, be they marketing or business or what you're seeing in the market. So they're great videos. They started as something that you would record quickly and now are, are very well produced uh, videos that you shoot. Thanks. So, well, thank you, sir. And oh, thanks, Justin. Uh, we'll see everyone else next week. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining another episode of Built Unstoppable. Please head over to BuiltUnstoppable.com where you can read new articles from Justin Levy. 